Venerable Master, Dharma friends, welcome to our Sutra Lecture tonight. This is Saturday, December 8th. We're here in Berkeley, California, and we're going to be explaining the Ten Grounds of the Avatamsaka Sutra, the fourth ground in particular. And I'd like you, if you would please, to turn to the front cover of our sutra text. And we'll chant the name of the sutra and the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and invoke their presence. Namo Please turn to page six and seven in your new sutra text. We're on the um, second line, first full paragraph. By the way, there are three empty seats up front. Those of you who've made a new row in the back, um, I know everybody doesn't want to come forward. So just to let you know. Okay. Fuzi. Pusa Zhu Zi Yan Hui Di. Sir 
生如来家，何等伟时。Okay, good. Over to the right. Disciples of the Buddha, the Bodhisattva, while staying on this, the ground of blazing wisdom. Then can by using ten kinds of wisdom for maturing dharmas realize those internal dharmas and be reborn in the thus come one's household. This is the fourth ground, and our bodhisattva is practicing vigor. The fourth ground is about vigor, which, in other translations, is strength. The the paramita, the perfection of vigor, virya paramita, sometimes gets translated as strength. So this is the perfection of strength. The bodhisattva is strong in his. Practice and he's come from patience, which is the third stage, and he's heading for stillness and concentration, which is the fifth stage. So here he is in the fourth stage, and strength here is not physical strength; it's not muscles, and it's not uh, power, the way we think of it in the world. It's strength in the Dharma, and he has connected, or she has connected, that the only thing that's going to work to help the people whom he cares about, the only thing that's going to help them wake up is the Buddha Dharma, and he set out to learn it so that he could teach it. He realized that the only way he could teach it would be if he himself embodied it, if he internalized it. So, we, the word last week at the end of the the text was the ru di su yan hui di. He obtains. Let's go word by word. He gets enter number four, blazing wisdom ground or stage, and. It makes no sense to say he enters a stage, and even less do we enter a ground. How do you enter the ground? Well, you do in a in a coffin, in a casket. When you die, you enter the ground. So clearly, that's not the way to translate this. It's, I think, a better way to translate "ru di su yan hui di" would be to master. He, de ru, he gets entry. He obtains the、uh, passage into. What do we enter? We enter a door, and a door. The thing about a door is, before we enter it, we're on this side, and there might be a think of a wall, or a gate, or a house, or a airport immigration barrier, and you're on this side, and you deru, you enter, and things are different suddenly. You're on the other side, and it's new. It's fresh. You've left that behind. It's behind you now. Suddenly, there's all these new 
open possibilities. That's the basic understanding of Doru. But I don't think that works here. What I think is happening is the Bodhisattva has taken these teachings, the first three grounds, the first three stages, so much to heart. He's so good at it now that he has thoroughly identified with this new wisdom, these new skills, these new abilities. He is them. They're part of him. He's able to function with another level of precision that earlier he couldn't. He couldn't teach. He couldn't share. He couldn't show how to put an end to suffering and pain because he hadn't done it at that level. So now he has. And he's moving now into the fourth stage. I read something fascinating this week about a new psychological survey. I forget who did it. But they were testing people's memories before they went through a door. And the test was to see the psychological effect of a door, going through a door, just the actual hole in the wall that you pass through. And they discovered that people's memories on this side were much clearer and keener in their retention. And if they were halfway through a story or relating a list of things, as soon as they physically passed through the door, those memories were harder to get. They would forget the story. They would lose their place in the list of memorized sequence of terms. And the survey's conclusion was, tentative, mind you, was that going through a door washes your mind clean. They said there's actually something about passing through a portal that registers physically and psychologically. And when we go through a, a door, somehow our sensory apparatus, our search and retrieval mechanism, right? Our, our uh, RAM, our search, our find uh, program in our software uh, switches and we prepare for something new, which is fascinating. The idea that there's something in us that is triggered by going through a door that changes the way we function cognitively, changes the way our brains work. What an interesting idea. And it, you'd think that sounds almost, almost far-fetched. It's almost silly. But in fact, that was the results. The people found that passing through a door interrupted the flow of memory in the sense that it prepared for you, you kind of reboot when you go through a door. Interesting. We have this, all this new computer vocabulary to describe mental processes. I love it. So the Bodhisattva is now rebooting, and he's about to, to absorb all of this new information and new techniques. And there's a phrase in the Dharma that keeps coming up that Master Shrenhua, our teacher, would tell us. He would say that, a first-stage bodhisattva does not know what a second-stage bodhisattva knows. And a second-stage bodhisattva has no idea of what the third-stage bodhisattva knows. 
The third stage knows everything about the second and the first. The second knows everything about the first. But each level, as you progress through the stages of the Bodhisattva's wisdom, um, is entirely new. It's kind of a, a, um, a multiple of the one below. It's, it's factored. Um, there's a, there's a, an entire paradigm shift as you go from one to the next. There's a whole, this, this is, might be interesting to scholars of, of the Avatamsaka, but apparently um, your progress along the grounds is not always sequential. They say sometimes people can leap. You, you don't have to go from one to two to three to four to five. Sometimes people can skip steps. And there can be incremental growth and there can be great leaps of growth. It's not fixed. It depends on the person's vows. Anyway, that's another story. So here's our Bodhisattva. And he has the Ru Di Si Yan Hui Di. He is now ready to absorb all this new information and these new processes. And yet, it is still based upon what he has learned. He doesn't reject the earlier knowledge and skills and abilities and gong fu. He is a building on it at this point. And like, what did we learn last week? Take a look back at 4 and 5. Turn back to page 4 and 5. You'll recall what our Bodhisattva was doing then. He was contemplating. And he was looking with his mind's eye. He was looking long, slow looking. He was looking and then looking again, focusing on. That's the kind of guan. It's not glancing. It's not uh, staring. It's, it's not use of the physical eye. It's looking with the mind at... Ten realms, ten jie. And we went through these, we talked about how jie are, there's kind of like a boundary that you put around something to establish uh, a limit. That's kind of the, the, the door that you go through. You build the wall with the jie. And things are on the outside that are kept out, and what's inside is circumscribed. Is, is drawn by what's inside that realm. And they were living beings, the realm of Dharma, the realm of worlds, the realm of space, consciousness, desire, form, and formlessness, the three heavens. And then it was vast, meaning expansive, minds, faith, and understanding, and then big minds, faith, and understanding. Those are the realms the Bodhisattva was looking at. So... He was getting his mind ready to absorb the new teaching that's coming his way. And one testimony to the thing that I keep saying over and over about how the Avatamsaka has philosophical elements in it, but it's not philosophy. This is not a philosophical text. It's medicine, it's a map, it's a doc file, it's a PDF with instructions, it's a manual for how-to. 
The bodhisattva is learning this stuff because he or she is going to use it immediately. Every bit of information and skill and technique that the bodhisattva absorbs is immediately put into practice to help the people for whom he has promised, to whom he has promised to save, to rescue, to extract from their misery and their pain. The bodhisattva has his mother's face in his mind as he learns the information on the fourth ground. Excuse me. He has his enemy's face uh, in mind as he, if the bodhisattva has enemies, he has the people he doesn't like very much, but who's going to save anyway? Because those are the ones he wants to save first. When the king of Kalinga cut off all the limbs of the patient immortal, the patient immortal said, ah, you're the one I'm going to save first, because clearly I owe you things. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here chopping my limbs off. So you're the one who I'm going to teach first. So the bodhisattva has those beings in mind. And so far, he doesn't know how to help them. So far, she hasn't got the answer. Anybody who has an autistic child knows the pressure of not knowing what to do. Autistic children, there's not, I shouldn't generalize that way, but there's, it's a whole spectrum of behaviors. But parents of autistic, autistic children learn patience because the children uh, are obviously not functioning the way the, uh, their siblings are. They have a whole different wiring system and they react to things differently and, and they have their, they're alive in their own worlds. And often the parents can't get there, can't, can't reach them. And everyone is, is uh, uh, seeking this knowledge. How do you reach children who are in this world of autism? What do you say to make a difference? How do you touch their hearts? How do you move their feelings and empathy so that they can be sensitive to the world around them and, and uh, socialize so that you can just get through the day without horrible tantrums and, and self-destructive behavior and all of the, uh, the grief that, is, that happens when a child is afflicted with, with this particular problem. And the key is, how do you reach them? How do you get there? How do you touch their hearts? So the Bodhisattva has these people in mind as who, for whom he is related, to whom he is, he is kin, he's blood kin, and he just wants to touch them and to get them to believe. And you know what? He doesn't know how. Hasn't got the clue yet. So every bit of knowledge that he's learning, he's thinking, maybe this, maybe this is the thing that I can do it, say it, think it, show it, and they're going to go, oh, okay, I see. I get the point. Uh, you're right. You're right. So that's what he's waiting for. And that's why you say philosophically, in a sense, I mean, it's, it's not mechanical, and it's not uh, engineering, uh, it's not applicable to commerce, you know, it's not that kind of thing. It's talking about the mind, and as such it could be spiritual, but it's philosophical, but it is profoundly practical, healing, applicable instructions for how to fix what's broken in, 
in the human heart and in the Buddha nature. So think about that, the Avatamsaka Sutra as repair. It's a repair manual. It's the troubleshooting file. The Avatamsaka Sutra is a troubleshooting text because we don't start out as Buddhas. So here we are, the Bodhisattva staying on the ground of blazing wisdom, just like the, the aura, the yanguang surrounding a, Bodhi, a Buddha or a Bodhisattva in their images that we see. That's the blazing wisdom that some eyes can see. Some people realize that, see that actually blazing from the nature of someone who's uncovered their afflictions. Others of us just kind of feel it as maybe charisma or character, we say. But in fact, there is some realm where that light is registering. Can then do what? He can use ten wisdoms, plural, ten kinds of wisdom, ten modes of wisdom, ten different applications of wisdom. So there's a bunch of ideas there together. What is it? Bring to maturity dharmas. Bring dharmas to maturity. And once gaining, once getting these nei fa, sheng ru jia, is reborn in the Tathagata's family. Okay, a lot of ideas there. And the word fa comes in twice. Look at that. So, cheng shou fa gu. The idea is, cheng shou is pretty clear. It's to mature, to ripen, to bring to fullness. So how does it go? Using ten kinds of wisdom for maturing dharmas realizes those internal dharmas and be reborn in the thus come one's household. What internal dharmas are they? Um, one way to think about it is the ones we just talked about, the ten realms. To look back at the list we just looked at, last week's realm, ten realms, beings, dharma, worlds, etc., and treating them as, it says, nefa, internal dharmas. That is to say they're immaterial. They're not material. They don't have any weight. They don't have any force, vector. You can't measure them. You can't buy and sell them. They're internal experiences contemplating living beings contemplating space. We did it last week. We talked about how space is not conditioned. It just surrounds everything and permeates everything. We are space. Space is us. So that makes sense if you say that he's bringing to maturity that contemplation. As he looks at that, that's now the way he he's oriented. That's the way she identifies puts the world together. This is how things are made. This is how things are. Those ten realms. And the bodhisattva is functioning inside them. So 
he always has a sense of spaciousness around his behavior. Do you ever talk to anybody or deal with somebody who, when you, when everyone else was upset and worried, there was always a kind of a calm around that person. They never got upset or exasperated or out of patience. There always is a feeling of plenty of time, lots of space, air circulating through. That might be from contemplating empty, spec, um, empty space, contemplating the realm of space. You just realize that there's no pressure. Um, you know what this is? This is the anniversary of the taking of the photograph from Apollo 7 of the Earth. That wonderful photograph of the Earth that has been reprinted in head shops and boutiques on, on stationery and flags and websites forever, where the Earth is this blue marble and you can see the, the oceans and it's, uh, it's set against the blackness of space and you realize, wow, we're just that. That's us. That was taken 40, 40 or 30, 40 years ago today. Could that be? I guess so. I guess it's 40 years old. But we've, been, we've only been able to see ourselves as limited by this blue marble set against the blackness for our lifetime. Generations before us might have even thought that the earth was flat. Because it looks that way, you know. You have to get pretty far up before you can see the curvature of the horizon. I once climbed to uh, 14,000 feet in the Colorado Rockies on my own two feet. Mind you, you start up about 10,000 feet before you start climbing, so it's not such a big deal. But um, from the top of Castle Peak in the, above uh, Aspen, um, you can see the curvature. You go, oh, it's round. It's not flat after all. <laughs> Look at that, you know, it's round, by golly. But down here in the valley at sea level, you know, it looks flat. And if you want to see it flat, go to the, go to the Great Highway and look west. Just look at the ocean and you see this whew, flat horizon. So we get that sense of, of a line of something demarcating ocean and, earth and heaven, you know, heaven and ocean, heaven and earth. When in fact, it's not. That's an illusion. It's round, and there's that much of it. That's the earth. That's us. And while it makes sense mathematically and conceptually that there are other planets out there, we've never seen one. What if there aren't? You know, what if this is really it? And we're, we've consumed it. We've broken it. That's another story, but... The Bodhisattva looks at it that way, and things change. He brings to maturity these nefa, right? He matures dharmas by putting them in the context of their limits. As he was contemplating last week, he was contemplating living beings, the realms of beings, and counting them up. One of the things about the Sharangama Sutra if you look at the Sharangama, is it goes into detail about the 25 existences, the 25 ways that beings come back and back and back and back, how we are reborn. And 
is fascinating to, to look at these realms. And they also talk about the four kinds of birth that living beings come in, right? Come from wombs, like mammals. Come from eggs, like birds and snakes. They come from moisture, like mm, mosquitoes, for example. Um, and also by transformation, like, uh, for example, butterflies come out of, out of worms, out of uh, caterpillar, etc. So four kinds of birth. As the Bodhisattva contemplates these limits, he or she goes, that's it. I've pretty much drawn a circle around all the possibilities. And based on that, I realize I actually have choices. And do we do that? Yeah, of course we do. Mm, most of us don't ponder our death, I'm assuming. right? You'd think that's pretty morbid. Somebody who thinks every day, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. You know, my, my death is coming. The day I'm born, my death is certain. Not when. It's only when, it's not if. As soon as I have a body, I know I'm going to die. If you thought that way all day long, people would say, you know, maybe try some Zoloft, you know. What about some Paxil? Uh, you need some antidepressants. I know a doctor, you know, we'll, we'll fix you up. Take this, you know, get happy, we say. You're just depressed. You must be a Buddhist, right? You're, I think you must be, only Buddhists think that way. You're so depressed. Buddhists have no fun. It's just death all the time, you know. Suffering, suffering, suffering. Right? Boy, I'd rather be a Christian. At least you can wait for Easter and Christmas, you know. Two times a year you can be happy. You Buddhists, all suffering all the time, 24-7. No, that's not true. Buddhists aren't suffering. Look, is, is, is he suffering, you know? Are they suffering? Not really. So do we think about our limits most of us operate, even though we don't think about it all the time, we are aware that everything that happens to us happens, you could say, on a stage between about 18 to, what, 70? Before 18, we're just, we're still in mom's kitchen, you know, we haven't graduated, we just got our driver's license. After 70 plus, it's kind of harder Right? And boy, oh boy, as I get older, the time seems to go faster. Friday comes the day after Monday now. It's just like the weeks go, boop, and it's over again. And here we are. I mean, that's nice to be back on Saturday night with the Avatamsaka. Kind of wait for that. But the time in between goes so fast, you know. And so my point is to say we too contemplate realms. Know it or not, we live our lives with these unconscious, barely conscious, semi-conscious parameters. One is we're aging. We're, we're going quick. Time is going unless you have digital and we're just going right on that watch. The hands are going around. We used to go like this. Now it's digital. So you got to time is going fast, right? It's going so fast. And we have that awareness that we are mortal and we're kicking off. And 
people who who work in hospices, people who are paramedics, doctors, insurance adjusters, right? People who do um, um, what's the the field of the insurance companies that calculate birth rates and demographics, what do you call that? Actuaries, actuarial people who see, you know, who step back from their immediate experience and look at how quickly people go, police persons, you know. They're aware that life is really fragile and fleeting and not much time in between. So the bodhisattva is looking at that and not just for human life, but he's putting all sentient creatures, all six Dharma realms and the four sages realms into his mind and contemplating and watching this happen, watching the coming and the going and the coming and the going and the coming and the going. So he is bringing to maturity 10, he's bringing dharmas to maturity based on these contemplations and the bi ne fa sheng ru la jia eight characters having internalized having rebuilt his awareness of how things are reality he is power phrase here the ru la jia sheng ru la jia he is reborn in the Tathagata's family. What is that? What does it mean to be reborn in the Tathagata's family? What an amazing idea. He becomes a child of the Buddhas, plural. Okay, Tathagata, Rulai, another name for the Buddha. He's born in the Buddha's family. Reborn in the household of the Tathagata. Really? Well, essentially, yeah. Does, does, he, does he pack his suitcases and move in, take a room, you know, upstairs in the Buddha's house? Is that what it means? Does he change his address? Does he print new business cards? You know, 123 Tathagata Avenue or something? What, how does he do it? No, you don't want to get silly about it. But what does it mean to be reborn in the Buddha's house? What an idea. What an interesting idea. You have a new family. And then we hear what are the ten dharmas that come to maturity. So being born in the Buddha's family... There are a handful of phrases that come up in, in the Mahayana texts that refer to the same idea. Uh, um, taking on the work of the Tathagata, the Tathagata's family, doing the work that Buddhas do. Fodza, um, child of the Buddha. Um, when you take refuge you take refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Um, 
things like that. There are phrases that kind of point to the same idea about having a kinship with the Buddha. You, you, pick, you have new parents in a way, new kin, new shishongdi. Uh, we say that. That's one of the phrases. We say, yeah, shishong, dharma brother. I don't think it's talking only about monks and nuns. When, when I become a bhikshu, when I get uh, my name from my teacher as I, um, at whatever phase it happens in my progress towards becoming a monk, I can sign a surname, Shi, Shakya. I could be Shi, Hung Shi, but I thought that sounded kind of funny. And even funnier is Hung Shi Shi, which people call me, and I correct them every... I don't let them get away with that twice. Do not call me Hung Shi Shi. Not. That's, nobody's going to want to be Hung Shi Shi Shi. So, Shi, Hung Shi Shi, could be too many Shi. But all Buddhist monks and all Buddhist nuns are Shi, Shakya, and then your Dharma name. Shi, Hung Shi. Some people use that, others don't. Um, it's a it's a choice you could use, but the sure is Shakya, like Shakyamuni, right? Um, the um, it's an option for people to use that as you as you choose, but it indicates that you are a member of the Buddhist clan. You're a you're a kinsman, kin clan member. In China, when they talk about the three faiths, they say, Shi, Dao, Ru, 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 Shi, Dao, right? The Confucian, Taoist, and Buddhist. So the Shi is shorthand for Buddhist when you put it in the, the, the Sanjiao, Hu Yi, the idea of Chinese, Chinese religions, Buddhism, Taoism, Confucianism. So what does it mean? to take on the Buddhist surname, to be called Shi something. Shi Hung Shi, Shi Yomin, right? To be a clansman, a clan, you're, you're a member of the Buddhist family. What's, what's it talking about? What does that mean, to have the Buddha as your relative? Well, let's take a look. So I've raised the question. Let's, let's think. As we look at these ten dharmas, we can... Imagine, what is it in these that qualify the bodhisattva to now be part of the Buddhist family? Okay, so that's our frame, that's our, our focus for our lens as we, we kind of look at the, these ten dharmas. Here we go. Okay. He deng wei shi, so wei shen xin bu tui gu. Yu san bao zhong sheng jing xin, bi jing bu huai gu. Guan zhu heng sheng mie gu. Guan zhu fa zi xing wu sheng gu. Guan shi jian cheng huai gu. Guan yin ye you sheng gu. Guan sheng si nie pan. Guan Chung Sheng Guo Tu Ye Gu Guan Qian Ji Ho Ji Gu 
观无所有尽，故是谓实。What are the ten? He gains rebirth by keeping a profound attitude that does not retreat, by fostering pure faith in the three gems, which is never destroyed, by contemplating the creation and destruction of all deeds. By contemplating how the intrinsic nature of all dharmas does not arise, by contemplating the coming into being and the destruction of world realms, by contemplating how there, how. Scratch the there, by contemplating how things arise because of karma. By contemplating birth and death and nirvana. By contemplating the karma of living beings and countries. By contemplating the borders of before and the borders of afterwards, by contemplating what has no end, those are the ten. Okay. So this is an Avatamsaka list. There are ten things, and it's very complete. They call it the teaching of totality. Not nine. Not eleven. Ten, and they're different. Each one is. There's no particular pattern through these, like there was in the the last set of ten last week. There was a guang, xin guang, or was it guang xin xin jie, guang xin xin jie jie, and then da xin xin jie jie. There two were paired. And then we had the three realms: the yu, the desire form, and formless. Here, it's not as evident how any patterns. Let's take a look. What are the ten? The bodhisattva is reborn in the thus come ones in the Tathagata's household because of an attitude. You get reborn in the Buddha's family when you keep. A shen xin bu tui. What does the Chinese say? Deep mind, not turn back, not retreat. Often,、um, for people who are studying the Avatamsaka, often when you get a list of ten, the first one is what they call zong, and the others are called bie. The first is the head, the, the chief idea. The main topic and the other nine are are variations of that topic. Kind of the、uh, they are alternatives to it.、Uh, that's not the right word. Not alternatives. The first is the the main theme, and the other nine are the subsidiary kind of developments of that theme. So the first is shen xin bu tui, a profound. Resolve that doesn't quit. Okay, so that lets you be reborn in the Buddha's family. In other words, you don't give up. Okay, step back. Fourth ground. Topic: vigor, strength, virya in Sanskrit. Same word as same root as the word virile. Which means strong. Jingjin, 
right? Keeps coming. Energizer bunny. Think Energizer bunny. Right? You all know he's this little pink rabbit. He's got a big bass drum. And boom, boom, boom. One of the most successful ad campaigns ever. Why? Because people near and far, as soon as they see it, they think energizer, battery, right? Very successful because there's this little rabbit. And I remember I was there when they first introduced the energizer bunny. And he was wearing sunglasses and he was this silly little bunny who was beating a big drum. And he just kept on going, boom, boom, down the road, right? And he had big bass drum and he's a rabbit you know and he wouldn't quit he just kept on going like their batteries right batteries powering little devices we depend on them they keep running right really successful association of images the energizer bunny peep that is now part of the language we say this person is the energizer bunny of software development you know the energizer bunny of of the uh the the um football team you know he just absolutely doesn't quit so um the bodhisattva is the has an attitude that works like the energizer bunny it doesn't quit no matter what obstacles the bodhisattva meets he she doesn't quit how do you stay connected to your child when they're in the terrible twos I have a friend who's got a a 2-year-old daughter. The birthday is today. And it wasn't twos, it was the terrible one and a, and 3 months. 50, at 15 months, the kid learned no. And it was And just no matter where, in the restaurant, you know, in the taxi, on the staircase, as soon as it was, if you, you know, said, uh, yeah, exploded into the screaming, kicking, beating, just because the child was exploring limits, right? And if you can make it through the terrible twos past, you know, to like two years and six months, everything changes. And the child goes, well, that didn't, that didn't get me anywhere. Uh, I'm going to learn. Now I can talk. And you, go, talk, 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 talk. you know, that comes in next is the talking ability. And there's something. About, and to be the, the parents when the child is going through the terrible twos takes this shen xin bu tui. You have to remind yourself, yes, I love this child. I love this child so much. I would like to squeeze this child <laughs> so much. I would like to silence. No, no, no. You can't do that. You're the you're the dad. You can't do that. So that is the kind of the bodhisattva does not retreat from his putishin, his resolve. No matter what, no matter what comes up, he's going. Yeah, I'll get through it. I make it because why? Nothing has changed. No matter what's in front of my face, the suffering of living beings hasn't changed a bit. The hells have not cooled off, right? The heavens have not grown brighter. It's the same no matter what is in front of me. It's just a test. And maybe I haven't seen it this serious before, but that doesn't mean this is a new level of 
impossibility. It's just always been impossible. Welcome to impossible. Get to know it. Shake hands with impossible. You'll get through it. And then it's possible, right? So that's the, the attitude that is the zong. This is the, the key for these dharmas that allow the bodhisattva to be reborn in the house of the Buddha. You have to have that kind of unshakable, irreversible attitude. It's a, it's an, a transmission that doesn't have a reverse. Your car doesn't have a reverse. You can only go forward. Imagine what it would be like parking with a car that could only go forward. So a profound mindset. Attitude is not... We've, we've improved a lot of this vocabulary since this was translated. We're using mindset for xin now. It could also be resolve. That the bodhisattva's putishin, his bodhi resolve is firm and fixed, absolutely stable. No set of circumstances can make this bodhisattva say, "Uh -uh, I'm out of here, forget this, not going to happen, right? Shen xin bu tui. And as a result, the bodhisattva has Buddhas as his family. Okay? Number two, yusanbao zhong sheng jing xin. The verb is the sheng makes, creates, gives birth to jing xin, what? Pure faith, purified faith. In what? In the sambao. Buddha Dharma Sangha, the three jewels. Down in the second row, there are three empty seats. So the Bodhisattva looks at Buddha Dharma Sangha, the connect this this formula that is called three jewels, and believes that they are the refuge. These this is the safe refuge. What is it? Wisdom principle and community of friends. The word sangha is um, a word in transition. Professor Du's master's degree students can you can assign them a research paper on the chain the changing meanings of the word sangha in the twenty first century. Sangha is a word that is morphed. It has changed from its original meaning in Asia, now in the West. If you, it, if you have a modem and a browser, you can be part of the cyber sangha. There is the gay lesbian sangha. There is the uh, cat and dog sangha. I've seen that. Sangha has become community. It's just an, another synonym for meaning group, basically. A uh, group that has, well, actually, it's, Sangha has already moved out of the Buddhist realm into general usage. People talk about uh, my Sangha because they want to add a kind of a, a Buddhist luster to their, to their group. 
means my buds, my, my homies, my friends. So it's not going to go back. I, I actually, um, back in 1994, I was um, right in the midst of my my doctoral program, and I had just um, started writing software reviews for the Berkeley Mac Users Group, BMUG. The Berkeley Mac Users Group was um, one of the world's most earliest and most active Macintosh Users Group. There were a bunch around the world. And BMUG. And BMUG had a newsletter, and occasionally they would get Asian language software and they would give it to me to review so um, we were uh, that was the community and part of that uh, in BMUG it was the time when bulletin boards were the hot item if you had a 24 baud modem you could go on a BBS a bulletin board and this was the precursor of the World Wide Web, right? This is before, that's how old I am. Can you believe it? There was a time before the World Wide Web. Really, Grandpa? What time was that, Grandpa? 24 baud modems. And, oh my goodness, remember the sound? Then you go online. And I was, uh, I ran a column called Ask a Monastic. Any questions you wanted to know about Buddhism? This is 1992 and 93. And uh, there was a, actually a, a, a Buddhist electronic magazine published called Cyber Sangha. And I was the uh, Ask a Monastic columnist for Cyber Sangha. And people would ask all these wonderful questions. So it was great. And it was so much fun to be able to type it was um, Macintosh System 7, I think, the time of System 7. We're now in System 10 and OS 10. But uh, I remember being the online monk that you could ask Buddhist questions to, and it was Cyber Sangha, by golly. And I wrote an essay for the Cyber Sangha magazine trying to reclaim the word Sangha for its original use. Monks, nuns, laymen, or bhikshu, bhikshuni, shami, shamini, the four ordained monastic Buddhist communities. And I realized at a certain point, it's gone. You, you don't, once a culture has kind of absorbed a word the way we have now absorbed sangha, you don't turn it back. Um, you can hold on to a position just to kind of say, there once was a time when sangha did not mean group or community, but it's, it's now been uh, absorbed into the mainstream. Sangha is a Sanskrit word that means he he jung, harmoniously united assembly, and it's defined by bhikshus, holders of 250 precepts, bhikshunis, holders of 348 precepts, and shamis, shaminis, holders of 10, shamanera, shamanera precepts. That was the original meaning, four, fourfold assembly. So it has now greatly expanded, and so be it. This is, you know, it'd be wonderful, interesting to, to research where it first appeared in publications and 
So if any of your graduate students want, I, I'll, I'll provide the story of the Cyber Sangha and how it was on 24 baud modems, you know, on the Cyber Sangha magazine, of which I still have some, still have links. So. Anyway, Sangha has now become the community. How do we want to think about that word? Sangha, what does it mean to you? Well, you know, if we're Buddhists, that's our word. So what does it mean to us, we Buddhists? I'm thinking these days that the, the Buddha repeatedly emphasized the importance of spiritual friendship. How important it is to pick your friends carefully. And why is the Sangha a refuge? Why do we say, I take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, the three gems, the three jewels. Why is the Sangha a safe refuge? What's a refuge? If the wind is blowing, if there's a storm, and you can make it through the Golden Gate and turn into the bay, you're safe. You're not going to sink. Now, the bay can be choppy, but it's not like being outside the Golden Gate, right? You're out there, you're in 16, 20-foot swells, you get in through the Golden Gate, which is a hard passage because those currents are fast. But once you're, you take the turn past Alcatraz, you're not going to sink because of the storm. You're safe in the, the harbor. You've made it to the harbor, the bay, right? That's why San Francisco is such a wonderful place if you're a navigator, if you're on board ship. So it's a safe harbor. There are different dangers, but it's not the danger of being blown by the storm. So if you can make port in a storm, you're safe. You take refuge. You get the analogy, right? They say birth and death is a storm. It's dangerous out here in birth and death. It's easy to make big mistakes. And it's also the best rebirth for transforming karma. So it's mixed, but... There's lots of heavy winds. There's lots of torrential rains in here in a human body. It's worse in an animal's body, mind you. It's worse in a ghost's non-body. It's even worse in the hells. So the Sangha is a safe refuge. It's the harbor. It's the port because who you meet in the community of precept holders, you know is not likely to kill you. Right? Or if they do, they'll feel bad, certainly. That's a, that's a, that's a plus, right? No, they're, they're not going to kill you, probably, the way, you know, even though they might get angry. Two, chances are, if you leave your wallet in the Buddha hall, it'll still be there two days later. They don't steal that much. They're not hitting on you. If you're a female, and if you're a male, you don't have to puff up and do the rooster thing because the guys are not looking at you as a competitor for the girls, right? The girls don't have to dress for each other to show their Gucci handbag. There's, it's not valued, right, because of that third precept. Fourth, people in the Sangha community don't lie as much. 
Why? We specifically say, you know, killing, stealing, lust, and lying are precepted behavior. We restrain that behavior. Intoxicants. You don't have to worry that when you get to the Buddhist community that you're going to wake up in the morning hungover without your wallet and maybe two of your front teeth because of the fight you got into, right? You're not going to have, you know, lost your entire savings at the gambling table. There's no guarantee if you go to Reno over Christmas that that's true. You might wake up in the morning without your wallet, without your income, without your car, you know, because you pawned it and then lost that, you know. So in the Buddhist Sangha, it's a refuge because of those fundamental behaviors that are restrained by the precepts. People are genuinely looking after your well-being. They want you to wake up. They're not there trying to score off of you. That's a big deal. You know, that's so different than the world around you. When you set foot in the marketplace, oh my goodness, right? Master Hua talked about the six guidelines, Liu Da Zongzhi, as his, he said, the most important Dharma method he'd ever found. He talked about them for years and years. And what are they? They are the soul of the marketplace. Do you ever think of those, the Liu Da Zongzhi that way, the six guidelines? They are greed, or fighting, that is, fighting greed, seeking selfishness, benefit, and dishonesty. And if you apply those to Black Friday websites, you know, if you go shopping online or if you step into the plaza, step into the mall, there you go. Competition is, rules the marketplace. Our products, Pepsi is better than Coke. Coke is better than Pepsi. Pete's is better than Starbucks. Starbucks is better than, you know, the Coffee Brothers. And what else? Greed. Absolutely. You know, the fiscal cliff, get real. That is such a bogus, whipped-up, greedy scheme. You know, seeking, yeah. Wanting to make it rich. Wanting to strike it rich. Seeking selfishness, self-benefit. Every company must. You think you can do business without wanting personal advantage? You go. You won't be in business long. You'll go broke. And dishonesty, ask any marketing agent about dishonesty. You make claims about your product that you know aren't true. And you got to ship it because you know nine months from now, coming down the pike, is another best. Right? So fighting greed, seeking selfishness, self-benefit, and dishonesty are the keys to success in the marketplace. You need them if you're going to do business. No joke. I mean... Here we are moralistically, you know, saying, ha, 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 these six guidelines. How are you going to succeed in business if you don't compete and seek and want advantages? You'll be a bad businessman if you don't, you know. So when you come out of the marketplace into what we call the way place, the bodhimanda, what do you do instead of fighting you when you come into the harbor of the sangha? the refuge of the Sangha. Why is the Sangha a refuge? Because the friends that you make there are not competing with you. They are not greedy for your part of merit or virtue. They instead, what do they do? Instead of fighting, they yield. They support you. Instead of being greedy, they give to you. They share. 
instead of seeking to be number one Dharma protector, to be best reciter, I can recite more Buddha's names than you can. Ha ha, sakka. Not, right? People don't do that. What do they do instead? They seek to benefit you, right? They want to, a lot of people go last. They're happy to go last. People volunteer to help each other out. Instead of being selfish, they're looking for selfless. Instead of grading benefits for oneself, they share. Instead of being dishonest, they want to be scrupulously honest, pure in body, mouth, and mind. So, how different? With those six guidelines in mind, this community becomes a refuge. This sangha becomes spiritual friends. You can count on them. You're safe there. They're humans. They're people. Yeah, right. But you're safe. Specifically with those, just start with those behaviors. That's big difference. Okay? They're not out to fight. They're out to yield, to to support. They're not out for greedy. They're out to give. They're not out for sexual conquest or advantage. They're there to help your virtue grow. They're not out, they're not seeking for that. They're not being selfish or after advantage. They want selflessness, to lose that difference, to put their horns in, to not stick out, to give the advantages to you and to be true. Seeking, Master Hua would say, the only thing I'm afraid of in the entire world is that I myself won't be true. about that so different place safe refuge among these people there are other problems mind you it's not that this community is perfect but those specific problems which are part of the marketplace the heart of the marketplace are absent that's a big difference so people come to the monastery and they kind of get a feeling it's like those pressures aren't here There are other pressures, mind you. And some people set foot in the monastery and go, oh, thank you, I'm out of here, boom, gone. It's just different water. They can't swim in this water. Because everything that the world tells them is important, they come in here, nobody's paying attention to your Ming Pai. You know, are you Ming Pai head to toe? Is that famous brand names that you got? Nobody's watching. Nobody notices, right? Shoes. Your shoes are on the rack. Nobody can tell if it's Jimmy Choo or Ferragamo. Or it's like, it's on the rack, you know. So put on the slippers. Uh, Fosher, could we wash the slippers? <clears throat> There's a lot of feet have been in these slippers, Fosher. Okay, we'll wash the slippers. But they're slippers. You know, keep your feet warm off the floor. You get, you're given a blanket and a zafu. <laughs> Fosher, could we wash these blankets? They're <clears throat> starting to uh, stand up by themselves, Fosher. We can wash the blankets. But there's nothing fancy, nothing to distinguish you from anybody else in the monastery. So some people come in there and it's like, whoa, that's too much, too sudden. Because in the world outside, you step one step outside the door and you've got to know the name brands. I was raised to be a consumer. I was raised as a kid to know the difference between five kinds of beer and six kinds of tires, right? Pabst Blue Ribbon, 
Why is Pabst Blue Ribbon different than Miller High Life? I can tell you. I can sing you the jingle. Right? Why is Buckeye Beer different than Blatt's? Blatt's beer tastes great wherever you go. Strike that from the record. Smoother and fresher, yes, filling, that's clear. Blatt's is Milwaukee's finest beer. That was played between every inning of the Detroit Tigers baseball games, which I never missed a one of. I got inundated in Blatt's beer commercials just by watching baseball, right? That's the world I grew up in. B.F. Goodrich, Goodyear, Michelin, et cetera, et cetera. Why do I know all those things? Because I'm trained to be a consumer. I'm a very good comparison shopper because I have all the information. I watched TV as a kid growing up. It was stuck in my head. See the USA in your Chevrolet. America is asking you to call. <laughs> All of that. Why is a Buick better than an Oldsmobile? I can tell you in detail. Right? Why is a Ford Mercury not as good as a Lincoln Continental? Oh, my goodness. I'll tell you. Because I know all that. I, I got force-fed that simply by staring at the picture tube and absorbing that stuff. Kids' brains are sponges. We soak it up, right? I'm a consumer. I know that stuff. When I came into my first meditation experience was in Japan at Antaiji Monastery in Kyoto. And we sat for eight hours a day for an entire week in silence. And I was a college student. I was a junior in college. And here I am, 19 years old, sitting zazen, in a tiny temple in Kyoto, and they whacked you if you moved. They actually walked with a stick and whacked you. I got whacked a lot because I was really rude. Sitting there, staring at the, at, the, at the shoji panel wall, I played back every commercial I had watched. They just spit back on, like tapes, playing back. For days, I would be sitting there, see the USA in your ship. You know, oh my, over and over and over, every song I'd ever heard, all the advertisements. I pan a toothpaste. You know, I've, I've done that one for you, right? Have you got Fosher's best commercials replaced? Brush up, brush up, brush up, get the new Ipana with the brand new flavor. It's dandy for your teeth. <laughs> Brought to you by Bucky Beaver. Bucky Beaver was the Ipana, right? So, you know, why? It's because kids have sponge-like minds. We become what we behold. And if we are given commercials, we suck it up. Of course. That's my literature. And every kid who was watching TV across America saw the same thing. So how interesting. When we come to the monastery, we unlearn all that. Why? Not valuable. When you're in the marketplace, that's good stuff. I can tell you why Michelins are better than Goodyear. But not here. It doesn't matter that one brand is better than another. This is not the marketplace. This is a safe refuge. But I totally understand why somebody can come in here and go, what a weird place this is. Right? Suddenly, all that cultural baggage is not valuable. It doesn't matter which brand is better. 
Why? We're not buying. We're not selling. It's not a marketplace. How different, how un-American this place is. Right? This place is profoundly countercultural. You come in and suddenly the skillful shopping information that I carry in my brain is valueless. How interesting. So it's not so easy as we introduce the Buddha Dharma to the West where people grew up with a medium, TV, that was perfect for delivering commercial messages. And oh, did it. Man, I have logged thousands of hours of commercials. I'm a consumer. I'm a trained consumer. It's not valuable here. Nobody cares. You know, when you're sitting there, like, watching my mind, all that information is just static on the radio. (laughs) Can't quite hear because it's static, right? It's a bad signal on the phone. Hello? Uh, I'm sorry, you're breaking up, right? That's the information that I was programmed with that as I sat still, as I bowed on three steps, one bow, all that stuff came pouring out of me with every bow like poison when you're like fever when your fever breaks you know you've had a fever for four days and you start to sweat one day and you wake up in the morning and all your pajamas or whatever cover the sweat and you know the fever's gone that's what the bowing was like day after day after day all of that stuff coming out because why I wasn't buying I wasn't in the market anymore. How funny, right? And you come in the monastery here, and you realize, look, what what is there to buy here? What do you see that has a price tag that wants you to know how good it is compared to the others, that is fighting, greedy, seeking? There isn't. You have to actually look to find the donation box. I had people, lay, lay people, who do commercial Buddhism. Mind you, there is commercial Buddhism, right? There's lots of places. And she said, you're never going to get rich if your donation box is so far away. Put it by the door. She said, thank you, thank you. We don't do No, 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 seriously. You need to put that by the door so people can find it. (laughs) I had that advice. So we don't do commercial Buddhism. There's the marketplace, there's the Shichang, and there's the Daochang. And there are some places where it's one place, right? You, you have to kind of keep your hand on your wallet when you come in the monastery because <laughs> the Buddhists inside are going to go for it. So the Sangha is a place where those values are examined. And it's a safe refuge. Probably key is the number three, the third one, that women can come in the monastery and know that they don't have to defend themselves from men making advances or from the women looking at them with jealousy or competitiveness. Men come in the monastery. They know that... There's, the women will not approach them, will not expect 
that kind of advance, and the guys are not going to be looking at them with their horns out to score. Is there a pecking order in the monastery? Do we honor, number one, the big alpha dog, layman, <laughs> the alpha hufa? That's a funny idea. We don't have that. There's nobody in the monastery who gets points for being wealthy, powerful, connected at all. Right? So those sexually determined societal values that are so important to know outside, when you come in the door, you can let them go. You don't have to pick that up. And at first, people don't recognize that. And then when they get it, there's this immense sense of relief and energy that comes from not having to do that. How much energy goes into being beautiful or being, what, tough or successful as a male? You know, how much, how much of our life do we put into those aspects of the marketplace? Is being desirable and being, what, masculine, right? A lot, a lot, a lot. They say that makes the world go round. And in the monastery, the power guys aren't wearing, don't have any hair, you know. The power guys in the monastery are wearing, like, old clothes and no style, right? How different that is. And some people come in and go, finally, I've found a place where I can let my heart show. Finally, I've found a place where my inner qualities can be fostered. My creativity, my imagination, my kindness, my sense of humor, my empathy, my connection, my spirituality, whatever that might be, my kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and serenity. Here can be encouraged, can be developed. Here, my stillness can be developed. And if, if you had to say it in a word, I finally found a place where I can be good instead of smart. The marketplace rewards being smart. The smartest guy, the smartest girl makes a killing. Kicks butt, right? Whoa. Now you come to the monastery and being smart is good, but being good is better. How nice to have a place. That's why the Sangha is a refuge. Because your heart can grow. And nobody's going to penalize you for being good or being slow on the draw, the other way around. You're rewarded for being kind. How nice to have in the world a place where goodness is rewarded, right? And that's the Sangha. So what is that? That is the Rulajya, the Tathagata's household. It's a different place, the place where the six guidelines are the the law of the land, right? 
where goodness is identified, valued, nurtured, developed, made to shine. And from that comes the wisdom and the compassion. But uh, Master Hua would say, oh, you know, he would say, the smart ones pass us right by. We're just too slow. They come in, they take a look, and they don't, they don't find their home here because we're too dull. Lao Lao Shu Shu, you know. We're just our old, slow methods. And if you're out to score, this is not the place. There's nobody's keeping score here. So these 10, they bring to maturity these internal dharmas. They have pure faith in the three gems, the three jewels, because those three jewels are wisdom, Buddha, principle or truth, you could say, abiding, unchanging truth, which is dharma, principle, and that community that is a safe refuge. All three are called refuges. Wisdom is a refuge. Truth, principle, is a refuge. And that community where the heart and goodness matter more than being smart and being quicker, competitive. Okay, we only got two out of ten, um, but we'll continue there next time. And the, um, the theme to look at, I'll give you all some homework. How's that? a question to contemplate during the week. And the question is, where is home? Where do you find yourself at home? How do you know your home? Where is home? And how do you know? How do you find yourself at home? And right away you think, well, home is where I hang my hat. Everywhere I, anywhere I hang my hat is home. You think, well, it's my address. It's on my card. It's on my email. We have virtual homes right now. We have virtual friends. Is your email address more your home than your physical address? Things have changed a lot, you know. And if you look more deeply, you say, is this my home? Is this, is this where I live? Mm, if you look at it deeply, obviously not. It's not a very stable home. If this is, you know. Where is your home? Your, your, your parents or your parents? Where do your parents come? You know. So there's a lot of ways to look at this question, and I would like folks to, to investigate, and uh, we'll, we'll talk about it next week, because why? Our bodhisattva has found himself, herself, home with the Buddhas, and these are the things that get you there. These... Um, Thoughts, attitudes, mindsets are the things that put you in the Buddha's home. And I, I'll tell you, they're not simple. If the, um, the realms the Bodhisattva was contemplating last week are kind of big, big circles, these are bigger. They're deeper. And it's still, notice, 
Kwan, he's still contemplating. There's still ways of looking, looking with the mind, but this is like watching things come into being and going away. So this is a, a deeper look, still contemplation, but that's where the Buddhas live, and that's where we find ourselves. Now, as you analyze it, it still comes down to things like goodness, but from the, the root of goodness in the heart, it goes way deep into things like where does this come from? Where does it? How does it? Where does it? Where does it come from? Where does it go when it's no longer there? Those are the the dharmas that allow the bodhisattva to be born in the house of the Buddha. Okay, homework. So we'll we'll talk about it next week. So let's transfer the merit you've got in your songbook there, the last, the back of the songbook, or in your Dharma request sheet. It's the dedication of merit, and you you put your mind to a wish to share the goodness that comes from finding refuge with fellow, with wholesome friends and the light of the Buddhas and the Dharma, all that goodness you share with your thoughts. There was a typhoon in the Philippines and 500 people died yesterday. It's like the headline kind of went that's, that's hard to imagine and so the world is still full of grief and misery don't have to remind anybody so those are places where we can transfer the merit where people are physically suffering all the people who are the Syrian conflict, not that we want to bring that into the Buddha Hall, but the Syrian conflict has been going now for months. And one of the options on the table is that uh, Basad, the uh, leader of the Syrian nation, may use chemical weapons on his own people. Chemical warfare. There's some sense that he is arming the, his planes with chemical weapons there's lots to transfer too that people's minds uh, recover from that kind of confusion and enmity so let's do that let's make a wish and transfer the mirror
Because our hearts are 